Welcome back to New Books in American Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with Ibram X. Kendi, Assistant Professor of African American History at the University of Florida. His book, Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, published by Nations Books, is the topic of this show. Kendi provides a fast-moving narrative of racist ideas, beginning with the Puritan theologian and preacher Cotton Mather, to the post-racial colorblind arguments in the age of Barack Obama. Through American history, racism has been justified by appeals to God's word, science, nature, or common sense. He demonstrates how good-intentioned efforts to overcome racism have often helped to cement racist ideas. The ideas of segregation and assimilation have rationalized racism and have reproduced and spread in the face of challenges by anti-racist arguments. Americans have unsuccessfully attempted to root out racism through notions of self-sacrifice, uplift suasion, and educational persuasion. Kendi argues that overcoming racism, which hides classism and sexism, will require intelligent self-interest, not altruism. Americans, regardless of color, need to realize that when black people are free of racism, all will be free. Here is my conversation with Ibram X. Kendi. Now let me introduce you to the author, Ibram X. Kendi. Ibram, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank you to sharing your thoughts with our audience. You have written a very large book, but before we get into it and discuss the ideas in the book, tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Stamp from the Beginning. So I'm an assistant professor of, of history at the at University of Florida, and I think ever since I started trekking towards uh, academic writing in the academy, I've always been interested in dissecting and understanding uh, racist ideas, but I didn't necessarily know it. And I began to realize my interest in this area when uh, after my first book, which was on black student activism in the late 60s, I decided to write a book on the origin specifically of black studies. And I not only wanted to sort of show what students were fighting for in the late 60s, but I wanted to show what they were fighting against. And they considered the academy to for scientific racism to be uh, endemic, which is why they demanded something completely new, which was black studies. So and that was sort of my start into understanding and researching uh, science, uh, racism itself or racist ideas. It really started with scientific racism, and then it blossomed into racist ideas in general. Now, your, your book is full of people and ideas, and many of the people that you talk about and discuss are people that no one really today considers racist, people that we would think we're fighting against racism. Mm-hmm. But you show how sometimes inadvertently even out of good intentions, people would end up underwriting racist ideas in a sort of roundabout way. Now, before we talk about racism, which is a big word today, how do you define racism? The book primarily is on racist ideas, and I distinguish a racist idea from a racist policy. And both, I think when people think about racism, they're typically thinking about both racist ideas Uh, and racist policies. But I define a racist idea uh, as any idea that suggests any uh, racial group 
is inferior or superior in any way. Now, the question that I got, I asked early on about the fact that you name a lot of people that we don't really consider racist, uh, but they were carrying racist ideas. The question is, can black people be racist? Yes. That's not really in vogue right now (laughs) to say that. No, it's it's certainly not in vogue because of the political context. And you had a situation in the 1960s, specifically in which civil rights and black power activists, more specifically black power activists, started challenging Americans as racist. Uh, And then conservatives decided, specifically in the post-civil rights moment, to state that no black people were actually the ones being racist. And then those black people then stated, no, black people cannot be racist. And that sort of argument has gone back and forth ever since. And, and so what I, I'm not really talking about the racism that conservatives beginning in the 60s were talking about was, was anti-white racism um, and whether black people can um, be anti-white racist. My book is primarily on anti-black racism. Can a black person uh, look at a black person who comes into their store and applies for a job and assumes that that black person is lazy because they're black and then don't not give them a job because of that? Yes. And that happens. Okay. Now, people have always shown preferences for their own group or people who they look like them or who think like them or come from their own ethnic group. So this idea of excluding difference is sort of been there for a millennia. Mm-hmm. Is racism that you're talking about or the kind of racism you're talking or racist ideas, are they specifically modern ideas? And how yes. do they differ from, you know, ancient people differentiating between themselves and the other tribe? Certainly. So, be, you know, race, racist ideas are modern inventions because race is a modern invention. And so before, and, and, and race, distinguishing people via, via the races is a modern invention. Before that, before the modern world, of course, you had people who were distinguished by what we now call ethnicity. You had people who were distinguished by gender, by religion, by class. And in almost all of those cases, specific ethnic or gendered or class or even sexual groups consider their group to be superior, uh, judge that other group from their own standards and thereby judge that group to be inferior. So certainly uh, hierarchies and human hierarchies is not new, new to the, is not new. And, and, and race is just the newest form of creating human hierarchy. Okay, one of the things that you really emphasize is racism as being sort of the fundamental a bottom line way to differentiate among people in our society. And now a lot of feminists would argue with you and would say that actually gender or sex, female subordination to males, that hierarchy, that gender hierarchy is more fundamental in their earlier and that Mm -hmm. racism is actually built on that. Well, how would you respond to that? So actually, I don't believe that um, race is the fundamental way that we distinguish people uh, in, in American society, uh, I think it's one of many ways, and gender, of course, is 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 one of those ways. In the book, I, I talk about uh, gender racism, uh, which essentially is the intersection between race uh, and gender, and the ways in which those intersecting ideas 
are utilized to demean black women or or black men or even white women. Nor do I think class is the principal distinguisher, just like I don't think race. I think they're all uh, interconnected. Okay, great. No, I wanted to ask you now, since science is such a big part of your argument, uh, modern scientific uh, ideas that really undergirded racism, what are the, some of the ways, can you talk about some of the ways that science underwrote racism in trying to explain evident, just surface differences? Scientists came up with all kinds of theories about why, you know, why uh, uh, African people were inferior to, to Europeans. Can you talk about some of those theories? So, sure. So in, in the United States uh, in particular, the first major uh, scientific theory that demeaned black people is what I call in the book physical assimilation, which essentially meant that the original humans were white. Uh, black people had became black when they moved to hotter climates. And so the way to basically make black people better, uh, because to be white was to be better, was for them to move to northern, uh, colder climates. And that, that would then solve the race problem, because the race problem is basically the black problem. And these physical assimilationists, most notably Benjamin Rush, who was a major founding father as well as Philadelphia doctor, or Samuel Stanhope Smith, who was a president of Princeton. These are the type of people, or even the founder of some of the Boston intellectual associations. I mean, this theory was very predominant uh, in in the first 30 years of the United States. Uh, Didn't, was it Rush, the one who said that he thought that blackness was a disease? It was leprosy? At some point? Yes, he considered it to be a skin disease that he called leprosy. And so, therefore, he then stated that, of course, it could be healed. Blackness literally could be healed. And, of course, to be healed was to become white. So was it one of the things that they could point to was the fact that there were biracial people and they could see that biracial people were lighter in color, so it looked like they're getting healed. Yes, yeah, so that was one of the ways. Another way is there were these people who who they called uh, who basically there were these people who had the condition that we now call albino yeah albinos okay and and these people were constantly specifically in the in the 1790s paraded before audiences as proof that black skin could become white and the, these people were very famous spectacles uh, Henry Moss was probably the most famous one who was paraded, and, and several others were paraded even in England uh, to prove that black skin was, was becoming white. Okay, now, one of the things that all these uh, scientific ideas about how black people became black, there were also biblical ideas of how black people, be- and there was a whole theological arguments about about races and where humanity came from, whether there was one human being, the Adam, the original Adam, was white or black, and then whether there was other people the guy created. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the th- some of the theological or religious arguments for uh, justified race, racist ideas? Sure. And so, you know, science itself was primarily a theological project uh, until really the American Revolution. And, and, and 
And so before that, in early America, in the 1600s, uh, in early 1700s, the principal racists, just like the principal scientists, were theologians. And these theologians were typically engaged in several debates. One of them was whether black people literally could become Christian. And, and so the more liberal theologians would make the case that, yes, black people could become Christian and to be Christian was to be white. While the while other specifically slave owners who, who viewed black people becoming Christian as a ticket to uh, emancipation typically rejected the, those theories that black people could become Christian. So there was that debate uh, going on. And Cotton Mather, who's the first character in Stamp from the Beginning, was the principal uh, defender of notions, specifically in early, in the late 1600s and early 1700s, that black people could become Christian. Uh, and he made that case based on his theory that all human souls were white and so or could become white. And therefore, because all human souls could become white, black people who had souls that could become white could become Christian. Another huge debate that was simultaneously going on, and this debate preceded uh, colonial America, was the debate between what I call curse theorists and climate theorists. And basically, what is the origin of blackness? Is the origin of blackness the curse of Ham? Of, of God cursing the descendants of Ham to blackness and slavery and ugliness forever? Or is the blackness the result of the hot sun of Africa uh, making, uh, making the skins of black people dark and black? That goes back to usually physical assimilationists were simultaneously curse theorists, right? They believed that the Garden of Eden was in Europe and that the original white Adam and Eve had migrated to Africa where they were blackened by the sun. And that's how essentially these climates, these, these black people came black. Okay. Now you have uh, all these ideas that are coming from theology and science <laughs> are, are finding their expression in things like uh, different political ideas, such as assimilation, social ideas about assimilation, segregation, colonization, uh, all kinds of ideas of how to actually solve this problem. Okay, because, because once you have a problem, a scientific problem or a theological problem, you have to have a political answer, solution. Yes. So can you talk a little bit? And these, in, the thing about it is throughout your book, you begin very early, but you show how these ideas keep coming up. They get reinvented, recycled in some different new form, but it's always the same thing. It's either assimilation or segregation. So can you talk a little bit about those ideas uh, and, and how... They fit with each so other. Certainly. Yeah. And so certainly. So the, I begin the book talking about racial disparities and how racial disparities are as old as the United States itself. And so then the question becomes, why do these racial disparities exist? Why is it that black people are enslaved and white people are free? Why is it that black people are disproportionately poor and in prison? Uh, and you've essentially had three different arguments throughout the course of American history. Uh, one argument has stated that there is completely, there's something wrong with black people. Uh, black people are the reason why they're enslaved because they make good slaves. Black people are the reason why they're in prison because they're so criminal-like. Then you had people on the other end of the spectrum argue that no, 
these disparities, these inequities are completely the result of racial discrimination. Uh, and then you've had people in the middle who argue both, who argue that, yes, you've had discrimination, uh, racial discrimination, uh, but this racial discrimination and this history of racial discrimination has made black cultures, black behaviors, even black bodies uh, inferior. That's the legacy of them. And so it's both their behavioral inferiority as well as racial discrimination that is causing these these disparities. And so I show throughout the book these three arguments uh, constantly uh, at play, determining, of course, American policy. I would call that the Bill Cosby <laughs> approach to racial yes. problems. Okay, so at the same time, you're also talking throughout your book about anti-racist ideas and anti-racist and sometimes semi-anti-racist Projects such as anti-slavery, abolition, uplift suasion, educational persuasion. There's been all these uh, programs or projects by different people to try to solve the problem of race in America. Talk about those a little bit. Well, going back to what I just stated, I mean, if you believe that the problem is black people, then completely black people, either their genetics uh, or that they have, they're genetically predisposed to inferiority, then you'll say there's no way to solve this problem. Or if you believe that they just have, they're culturally wrought, then your program to solve the problem will focus on improving or civilizing them. Uh, if you believe that the problem is fundamentally discrimination, then your solution will be to eliminate discrimination. If you believe that your problem, that the problem is both discrimination and the inferior behaviors of black people, then you're simultaneously, as abolitionists did, challenge slavery, but then simultaneously try to civilize black people. Right, because the anti-slavery, a lot of Americans don't understand this, anti-slavery is not the same as uh, abolition. Mm -hmm. And even abolition is not the same as anti-racist. Exactly. And they're all, you know, it's, they're all kind of fitting together. Anti-slavery was basically an economic project. We just don't think slavery is good for the economy. Yes. And for, for, for our society. Abolitionists wanted to, a quick and overnight overturn of slavery, but they didn't necessarily mean that, that black people were equal. Yes. William Lloyd Garrison was a perfect example. He was the third major character in the book, the, the most famous uh, white abolitionist in history. And though he was radically supportive of immediate emancipation and one of the first people to uh, articulate this and defend this, he simultaneously, when emancipation came, thought that black people needed to be civilized before they can gain their civil and voting rights. Uh, he believed and spent his career arguing that slavery had literally embruted black people. It had literally made these people into brutes. And that's why they need to be civilized before they can be equal participants in American society. I want to ask you about that, the, the statement you, you just talked about. If we seem to be believing in, we believe in sort of social construction of people, that if you if you take a child and you raise them, uh, and you don't teach them, you don't educate them, you, you, you basically abuse them, what you're going to get is not the best of a person. 
they're fully human, but you're still not going to get the best out of it. Out of the, so are you saying that social construction is uh, something that's been used? It's actually a racist idea? So it, it could be. And, and, and I guess what I'm saying is that as an historian, this to me, like as an historian, the question of whether black people had been imbruted by slavery, whether they, these, the 4 million black people uh, who were freed uh, in the 1860s were inferior to the 5 million poor whites, let's say, in the South. The way we would answer that question is to study freed black people in the 1860s. And when we look at the studies of who they were and what they were able, what they were doing uh, in the in the mid 1860s, uh, we see that they were widely admired, uh, and it was quite surprising for many people who were coming down south that these people were so educated, that they were so able to create schools and jobs, and they were so able to uh, create independent sort of farming communities without the without the assistance of of others, that they were doing all of these things themselves. Then they, of course, went on to become politicians and all of these other things that they were able to do. And so, uh, to me, the evidence that slavery had not made black people into brutes is pretty clear when we look at what black people did in the late 1860s. Yeah. I guess I'm not not insinuating that they were brutes. Oh, no, I understand. (laughs) Um, It's just, you, you know, what you put into a person's what you end up getting back so yeah. what you're saying, there was a strong enough culture within slavery uh, among the slaves that they were able to hold on to uh, a lot of important traditions that helped them after they were freed. Precisely. And what's what's ironic about this this discussion is that some of the people who would claim that slavery wiped out African-American culture and just, you know, totally um, destroyed these people as people simultaneously enjoy cultural products that black people created during slavery. <laughs> so it's a, it's an interesting sort of contradiction, uh, but I don't think people realize that nearly every aspect of African-American culture uh, was created during slavery. Okay, now you divide your book up into uh, several uh, sections that are actually in people. You use different people to really talk about periods of history. And your first period that you talk about is early America and use Cotton Mather is, is sort of the, the symbol of that. And and you were talking about key ideas within the Enlightenment. You know, we think of the Enlightenment as being very progressive and anti-racist and liberal against, of course, the very racist, oppressive religious ideas, which... I think there's probably, you know, a little bit of truth in all of that, but there's a lot of uh, a lot of not so true. So can you talk a little bit about John Locke, which is the father of liberalism, who, you know, is held up over and over again as this really hero because of his his work. Can you talk about John Locke's view on race? So first, I'll talk about John Locke's view on slavery. Okay. John Locke was very instrumental in the development of the British slaveholding empire uh, in the eight, in the 1670s uh, and 80s. Uh, he was a colonial agent 
for one of the most powerful lords in England. And in the book, um, he oh, he's well known as helping to write the Constitution for the Carolinas, which uh, essentially gave masters absolute power uh, over their slaves. Uh, but he is also uh, well known for his writing of what he called his 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 idea that humans were born with a blank slate uh, intellectually. And and so, of course, that's a very radical and progressive idea going against generations of, of, of thinkers who claimed that people are basically born uh, with intellect or without intellect. Right. And but. When, whenever in his books, in his writings, usually when he are, would articulate this blank slate, he would simultaneously call it a white paper. And the reason why uh, I speculate, uh, because, of course, this is pure speculation, he was calling this blank objective slate uh, white paper at the same time that Robert Boyle and Isaac Newton was calling light white and at the same time that others were calling beauty white. And so basically notions of objectivity during the scientific revolution as it transitioned into the Enlightenment era was typically colored white. And I use sort of John Lon Locke uh, as an example. And so that's how you had there were all of these connections between white and light in Europe. <laughs> Uh, that gave birth to the Enlightenment era. Now, Locke also believed, I, I think this is correct, uh, that parents' relationship to children, the parents were not absolute rulers over their children, even though he's saying that they are, that white people can be absolute rulers over black people. So that's kind mm-hmm. of interesting. I'm not going to talk about Cotton Mather right now because you did talk about him, but I want to go on to the second person that you use sort of as a figure of a particular era, and that's Thomas Jefferson. And we have to talk about Jefferson because he is such a, a heroic, mythic hero, you know, figure in American history. What were the contradictions in Jefferson? And there were many. <laughs> so so I, I framed Jefferson in, in the book. Uh, as an anti-slavery, anti-abolitionist, which essentially meant that he he was against slavery, but as a slave owner, he wanted slavery to end on the terms written by slave owners like himself. And and so throughout his career, uh, he had no problem engaging with other slave owners in figuring ways to reduce or even and slavery, but he, especially as demonstrated by the controversy uh, in Missouri in 1820, had major problems with abolitionists uh, engaging in that discussion who were not slave owners. So that's one of his biggest sort of contradictions, but he simultaneously had a, his racial contradictions were most obvious in terms of how he understood Native Americans vis-a-vis whites versus how he understood black people vis-a-vis whites. And so he believed that Native Americans were capable of becoming white, which is which is a basic assimilationist idea, but he was unsure about whether black people 
were capable of becoming white. And you see those contradictions uh, throughout his writings on both Native Americans uh, and black people. There's another thing that shows up in your book, and it's the theme of the exceptional Negro. And you start with the first one that you talk about is Phyllis Wheatley. Talk about her. She's a very interesting character, and I think she's understudied, for one. Yeah, so Phyllis Wheatley, like Francis Williams, who was a Jamaican before uh, her, were, were part of a wave of... You had abolitionists or even anti-slavery activists or even intellectuals who were trying to see whether basically black people were capable of becoming white. And I keep stressing capable of becoming white because for these intellectuals, the standard of intelligence was was whiteness or what white people believed or their cultures, uh, their ideas. Uh, and so they were interested. There was this there was this movement afoot in the United States as well as around the English speaking world to, to basically bring black people to schools to see whether they could be basically become, edu- quote, educated. Uh, and Phyllis Wheatley uh, in particular was was utilized in that in from that standpoint. And so when she became a very prominent poet. Uh, Latin poet, uh, abolitionists used her to demonstrate that uh, black people were capable of, of, of whiteness and so therefore they should not be enslaved. But from a larger standpoint, the way that racists then simultaneously challenged her was to say that she was extraordinary, which basically meant that she was not like those ordinarily inferior black people. And so that's why you long had these spectacles of these amazingly talented, from the standpoint of white people, uh, figures who white racists then turned around and stated, oh, yeah, they're nice, they're talented, they're great, but they're truly extraordinary. And I think Phyllis Wheatley, that's how Phyllis Wheatley connects today with Barack Obama. And that comes up with up with women also. Certain women yes. are exceptional. <laughs> they're not like the other women. Precisely. So the first half of the 19th century, racism is driven by scientific uh, ideas, theological ideas, but also I think a a huge role for economics, economics being a huge motivator. I think when I'm reading about Jefferson, all I think about is money. (laughs) You know, that all his philosophizing about race and what it meant really came down to he didn't want to lose his wealth. And I, I had the same reading. And so I think, you know, we can all, right, we can all talk at home in our houses or even in our writings uh, about the bad things, let's say, our businesses are doing, right? But we never say that, right, when we go to work because we're so invested and so interested in making money. And I think it was really that simple for, for Thomas Jefferson, while others were able to make that step, to take that step and say that, no, this is my moral conviction. And so I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice myself financially uh, in order to further this moral conviction of, of, of anti-slavery. Now, we get into the, the third period to talk about, which is the period of William Lloyd Garrison. And we, you've talked a little bit about Garrison already. His strategy for abolition, his strategy was moral suasion. 
he believed that if he just showed people how bad slavery was and how bad it was for them, white people, that it was bad for white people to have slaves because it, it compromised their virtue, that he could convince people to give it up. Why didn't it work? Or did well, it work? I, or did it I work? Think, I think that um, it did work in the sense that you, William Lloyd Garrison, even more popularly, Harriet Beecher Stowe and her Uncle Tom's Cabin and many other traveling uh, abolitionist speakers and teachers did shock many Northern Americans and even some Southerners into going against slavery. However, their their strategy for doing that was deeply racist. And so that's how you can have a nation that ends slavery, that abolishes slavery, but has not even began the discussion about abolishing racism uh, as what happened in 1865. Um, Because again, to claim that slavery had literally imbruted black people, had made them inferior, is to say that black people are inferior as a result of slavery, which is to say a racist uh, idea. And to make people come against slavery based on that idea, of course they're going to hold on to that idea when slavery is no longer around and you're trying to create an equal society. One, th- one person that you bring up in this, in this section that I was really so sad about was David Walker. You talk about David Walker and that even him, who we think of as such a champion of black people, his, I, he had, his ideas were also infested with some racist things that were in there. Can you talk about mm-hmm. David Walker and why he's such a disappointment? In your book. So I I, I think, well, let me just say generally that, you know, ideas, people can have many different ideas. So people can have both extremely racist and extremely anti-racist ideas. The beginning of a speech could be extremely anti-racist. The end can be extremely racist. And so I think one of the things, one of the ways in which we have, we we haven't really sought to complicate people in the ways that I think we should have. Uh, And so that's one of the things that I attempted to do. And so writing about David Walker, uh, just like other figures like Frederick Douglass and even Garrison, I I tried to sort of show how basically both um, some of the racist and some of the anti-racist ideas that they shared. So David Walker, to give an example, uh, he made the case that basically Africa was barbaric, uh, to give an example, which was a very prominent uh, idea. He argued that God had basically cursed black people uh, or Africa, and that's why it became so barbaric. Uh, and so that was one of the racist ideas that he uttered in his appeal uh, in uh, 1831, uh, as well as some other ones. Uh, but of, of course, that idea uh, was deeply racist. Well, one thing that was really distressing about this point in your book is how pervasive uh, these racist ideas are, how they sneak up on us, how they're intertwined with other positive ideas that it's hard to differentiate. They're all kind of in there together. And it made me think that it's so deep in our psyche, so deep, to up, how to, how, what, is, what are the possibilities of uprooting it? Because it seems like anything we come up with 
is always going to be tainted by this legacy that it just keeps on giving. It just keeps on giving and doesn't stop. So at this point in your book, I was kind of in despair. But <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, I, I, you're making your point. So now we're going to go to this other period of time where you talk about W.E. Du Bois. You talk about Du Bois and the debate that he was having with Booker T. Washington. And we think of them as being sort of, you know, opposite. But you talk about some of the things that they shared in terms of racist ideas that kind of overlapped. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think we, we, we too often situate Du Bois in 1903. And we situate Du Bois as debating Booker T. Washington in 1903 without knowing that Du Bois was a supporter of Booker T. Washington, for instance, after, du, after Booker T., I gave his Atlanta compromise speech. He received a telegram of support from W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Nor do we look at the development and evolution of Du Bois's ideas after 1903, in which in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s, uh, he was criticizing his own earlier ideas. And so in that chapter, I tried to, in that section, I should say, I tried to sort of show the evolution of Du Bois's own ideas uh, about race and how he originally did have a double consciousness, a double consciousness of racist and anti-racist ideas. And over the course of his life, he uh, evolved into having more of a single consciousness of anti-racism. Okay, well, how, does, how does he play off Booker T. Washington? Booker T. Washington was just a mess. But can you talk a little bit about him, about his ideas, his racist ideas and well, because a lot of people I still think uh, admire Booker T. Washington <laughs> and still think of him as a model of possibilities. So both Booker T. and, and Du Bois um, articulated the theory that slavery had made black people inferior. And, um, and, and so specifically poor working class uh, black people, uh, they both articulated uh, that idea. And so that's why they both... Um, more so Booker T early on engaged in a series of programs to uplift, to civilize these people and simultaneously would agree with those whites who looked upon these people as inferior, as needing civilization, as not being able to vote uh, and other things. Yeah, so, you, so you've got, so got Du Bois talking about the talent and tenth, getting the cream of the crop of black people and making them the leaders so they could lead the rest of the race out of the pit. Yes. Right. And then you got Booker T. Washington says, no, we've got to go back to the, to the farm, to the basic things. We've got to learn how to do crafts and work our way up as a people. Yes. And they both agreed with the idea that the bottom 90 percent was inferior. Right. And so but they had a different perspective or strategy as to sort of how to uplift those people. And I think this is this is an idea that's still very much uh in America among uh, black elites, is it not? Yes. And so I another sort of term that I talk about in the book is what I call class racism. Uh, and that is the idea. So basically, when when you describe black people as inferior, that's a racist idea. When you describe poor people as inferior, that's an elitist or classist idea. When you describe black poor people 
as inferior. That's an idea of class racism, the intersecting of both racist and elitist uh, ideas. And so you not only had whites who were engaging in notions that black poor people were in some ways inferior, possibly the the leading progenitors of that were black elites. (laughs) And, And so I track sort of their ideas specifically originating with people like um, you know, the founders of the Freedom Journal, the first newspaper, um, and even going through Du Bois and others uh, in the book. Okay. The the last uh, era that you talk about is the era that you put under Angela Davis, which is the era of the civil rights, affirmative action, uh, black power, colorblind ethos, multiculturalism. These are seen as things that has brought down racism. People see the, saw these things as, okay, racism is over. We've had civil rights. We've had black power. We've got a colorblind ethos. We've got multiculturalism. What's the problem? And then you talk about how even in all that, those arguments, embedded in those all those ideas, there's still racism, racist ideas. And you point to things like, the Cosby show and how he portrayed how black family was portrayed in that show, the drug war, Reagan's drug war, how that was racist in its formulation. And you talk about the new field of sociobiology, including the, the book, the bell curve, which was a book that tried to show that black people had some sort of cognitive disadvantage. So talk about that period and there's so many, so many ways to look at it, but talk a little bit to the audience about some of what you think are the major problems of, of this uh, colorblind ethos and the multiculturalism that is evoked all the time. So the colorblind ethos and its and current post-racial ideology, which essentially is is the same thing. Um, I make the case in the book as well as in some other writings that it may be the most sophisticated racist construction or racist idea to date. Uh, Because essentially, at its most basic level, the function of racist ideas has long been to make it such that racial disparities and inequities seem normal. And so if you believe that black people are lazy then when you find out that the black unemployment rate is twice as high as the white unemployment rate, that's going to seem normal to you. If you believe that black people should be enslaved, then when you come upon a country in which millions are enslaved, that's going to seem normal to you. If you believe that black people are criminal or black communities um, are more dangerous, then when you find out 40% of black people, uh, 40% of the prisons are filled with black people, that's going to seem normal. And so post-racial ideology and colorblindness essentially states that racism, racial discrimination, of course, is no more. And these racial inequities that persist, these racial disparities that persist are normal. And the only way that they can be normal is for us to believe that there's something wrong with black people. Okay, Ibram. All right. <laughs> the problem with all this, of course, is... We have a black president, Barack Obama. He's wonderful. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that? How has has Barack Obama's presidency helped black people or not? 
how has he how does he fit into this mix? If America is so racist, well, how can they elect a black president? I'm playing the devil's advocate here. Well, I think I think we unfortunately we we don't look at either the history of American politics to say that, well, before Americans elected a president, they actually elected a senator. And before they elected a senator, they elected a House of Representatives. And before they elected a House of Representatives, you had white people who were able to elect mayors and city councilmen. And so it's a long, really, trajectory. So that's one side. The other side is that it's hard to sort of state whether Barack Obama's presidency has helped black people. I mean, it's just such a huge and loaded um, question. um, Is that not not a racist question? Because it assumes that Barack Obama somehow has to carry the weight of his entire race or that he belongs to some race that he has to symbolize. Is is that not already a racist question? the aspect of it that is racist is is the idea that black that Barack Obama represents his race, and and so I think that's one of the reasons why you you have a situation in which when white people do wrong, since they're not representatives of white people, their wrongness is not generalized to say what's wrong with white people. The same thing, but with black people, it's different uh, since. Individual black people, especially prominent black people uh, like Barack Obama, represent, quote unquote, the race. Uh, Everything they do is measured against blackness. Uh, And so but I also say that I I think it's not surprising that post-racial ideology, probably the most sophisticated set of racist ideas uh, in history emerged during the black presidency. I mean, it builds on each other. Right. And of course, it literally did build on each other because the, the, the original theorists of post-racial ideology would make the case. Now we have a black president. This demonstrates that uh, that we're in a post-racial America. Right. It seems to be he's an exceptional Negro. He can be uh, he's exceptional. Why can't you be like you know, Obama? Exactly. And so that's what black elites, as well as uh, non Blacks say to poor and, and middle income blacks, you know, they should he demonstrates that racism is no more. OK, now, one thing that you argue and we've talked about black people, which is the center of your book, but you talk about how racism hurts white Americans. Can you talk a little bit about how racism has hurt white Americans? Because we hear a lot about white privilege today, mm-hmm. which makes the assumption that white people are not hurt by racism. They're actually helped by it. So I think I think the easiest way to answer that question is when we look at it historically. Uh, and so, you know, clearly more and more scholars are beginning to study poor whites uh, during the enslavement uh, period and how their wrenching poverty was directly uh, connected to the riches of white slaveholders. And we well, scholars are also beginning to to show to show the ways in which uh, Jim Crow laws, specifically voting uh, laws, disenfranchise poor whites uh, as much as or um, nearly as much as it, it dif- disenfranchised poor blacks, and that these laws emerged in the 1890s to break up a coalition of working class and poor uh, progressive whites and blacks. Uh, 
we we also know that you have person who has stood in the forefront of the most recent affirmative action case being a, 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 is a white woman. We also have studies that show that affirmative action has helped white women more than any other uh, racial slash gendered group. Uh, and so we also know that over the last 40 years that the concentration of wealth in the hands of the top one percent or one tenth of one percent would would not have been ha- would not have been able to happen if it wasn't for many of the racist uh, wars that were utilized to elect uh, conservative presidents that cut taxes for the rich. So I mean, all of these to me things, and these are things that I try to sort of show uh, in the text that. Uh, everyone has been manipulated by racist ideas for their own detriment. So basically, you're saying you're saying that, econo- that, that uh, economic uh, inequality has is, was fed by racist ideas, and it, uh, white people who are not part of that one percent or that top echelon are, are also hurt by those same racist ideas. They concentrated economic power in a few uh, top white elites. Precisely. And so the and and I think it's pretty clear that really members of both parties utilized race as related to welfare, as related to crime, as related to lesser extent affirmative action to get elected. And then then when they got elected, they instituted policies that were friendly to the rich and harmful to middle income, uh, as well as low income people. I mean, that's pretty that's pretty much the story of the last 40 years. So really, in your book, economics and racism are very, very uh, economic inequality and racism are very tie- closely tied together. Yes. And, and so I think you, you have a situation in which you've had American power brokers who recognize the power of racist ideas and they've been willing to wield that utilize that power for their own economic benefit. Okay. So how do we get beyond racism and racist ideas in America? Because like I said, your book is disheartening in a certain way. There's just so much. It seems so deep. It's insidious and it's deep-seated. And often in the book, it seemed like it was irrational. Uh, The racist ideas were irrational ideas. It seems like we're, we're trying to throw arguments on emotional reactions. And can we reason our way out of racist ideas? Yes, I think so. And, and, and I think that I think first we have to figure out what racist ideas are, right? And we have to be very, very honest with ourselves. And I say ourselves because I began the book talking about that I um, confessed that I had internalized racist ideas over the course of my life. Um, But I think we also have to have a very clear idea of what anti-racist ideas are. And so I think really the focus should not necessarily be on racist ideas, those of us who really want to move past racist ideas. And our focus should be on anti-racist ideas. And anti-racist ideas basically state that the racial group, despite all of their differences, bodily and culturally, are on the same level. And race, anti-racist ideas state that if we have racial disparities, we have racial inequities, it must be the result of discrimination. It, it cannot be something about something being wrong with black people. And so I think if we start from an anti-racist place, uh, as opposed to trying to run away from a racist place, I think we'll be a lot 
better off. Now, you know from your history that when we <laughs> when black people or anybody depends on uh, the power, political power, to at the top to pass legislation, programs, and incentives or whatever to try to eliminate racism. Oftentimes, what it does is create more racism. Mm-hmm. So, what is is there a bottom up approach? Is there a bottom up approach to anti racism that doesn't have to look to a big government and and that kind of power? Because I'm not sure I trust them. So I, I think that there, of course, is a bottom up approach in that each of us in our own lives, in our own families, in our own jobs and careers can, you know, can express anti-racist ideas, uh, can truly believe that what's wrong is not black people, but something wrong with the policies of our actual institutions, which is why black people are, let's say, as more scarce than other groups of people. I think we can do that. We don't need to rely on, you know, big power uh, to do that. But when it, when it comes to dramatically changing our society, we, we have to, of course, engage in a social movement uh, in order to do that. Uh, but that social movement has to be about gaining power. And so I, I end the book uh, talking about that it's not enough to challenge racist power, that in order to truly create an anti-racist society, you have to wage a social movement in which anti-racist people who are committed to anti-racist ideas, who are held accountable by anti-racist people who are willing to put forth anti-racist policies are in power. Uh, And anything short of that, and anything short of aspiring for that, will continue the legacy of American racism. So basically you're talking about offering a program, something that is positive, a positive move forward, instead of continually pleading at the doors of power, let us in. Yes, And, and I'll say that the fundamental thesis of the book is the role that racist ideas play in racist policies. And so we've been taught this narrative that powerful people are racist. In other words, they have racist ideas. And that is why they initiate or even defend racist policies. And But in my research, I found that it's actually quite the opposite and that you have racist policies uh, that are put in place for the benefit of the people um, who are in power. And then they, those very people or their defenders produce racist ideas to rationalize and normalize the inequities that come out of uh, those racist policies. And then the circulation of those racist ideas leads to our ignorance and hate. And so we've spent so much time trying to convince powerful people to not be racist, uh, when in fact, thinking that if they were less racist, then they would be less likely to initiate these racist policies, thinking that the real issue was their racist ideas, when in fact, no, it was always a struggle about power. Okay, thank you, Ibram. Thank you for your time. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in American Studies. It would be a pleasure to hear from you. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. Lillian Barger.